and pre-recorded. This is the Red Zone News Podcast. I am Brian Buckley. This is Hitting the Internets on October 25th, 2016. How is everybody? How are you? How's your family? How are things? Oh, this election. Damn it. Can it just be over with so we can move on, right? <laughs> you know it. What was that? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at BrianBuck13 and at RedTicketBlues. And listen to the show that millions around the world have laughed to, cried to, genuflected to at Red at uh, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube, and Google Play. So uh, we have Mr. Bill Pennington, who is a sports writer for the New York Times. He covered the New York Yankees uh, during the Billy Martin managerial era uh, throughout the '80s, uh, and he is the author of Baseball's Flawed Genius, Billy Martin. So. A lot of interesting stuff, especially for Yankee fans and uh, even baseball sports fans during that time. Uh, a lot of great stories. So we will get into that. But before we get into it, I just want to tell you about our friends. What friends? Oh, the old friends at Seat Swap. I have one question. What is Seat Swap? What is Are You tell me. What is Seat Swap? You know, for a guy that knows everything on God's green earth, Francesa cannot seem to wrap his head around what Seat Swap is. Well, I'm going to tell you. You've seen them at Francesicon. You've heard about them right here on the Red Ticket Blues. I mean, you've heard before, so stop. Uh, and all over Mongo Nation, but what exactly do they do? Well, I'm going to tell you. It's pretty basic. It's also kind of genius, you know, like those pretentious assholes at the Apple Store. They're a platform that connects real fans, not anonymous brokers or bots pushing marked up tickets, but real people. So they can trade or swap tickets with, with each other. Think of it like season ticket insurance. Everyone likes insurance, right? Well, insurance on your old stuff, right? When, when there's money on the line, obviously. You pay all this money up front to the team before the season, then boom, your starting quarterback ruptures his Achilles in week one. Or week seven if you're Geno Smith. And he's the backup. But, uh, you know, everyone on that team hates each other. Well, the quarterbacks hate everyone, it seems like. Uh, and the whole season, and your money go right down the toilet. You like my commentary here? Uh, but with Seat Swap, it's like having tickets to all your favorite events, even if you, all you have are Brooklyn Nets tickets. And those are the saddest people on the planet. Uh, you can't tell me any of those players are even happy. Jeremy Lin must cry himself to sleep. You can take the seats you already have, paid for seats you actually want, whether it's sports, music, theater, or something weird like Circus, Cirque, Cirque du Soleil. And you know, Seat Swap, some of us like Cirque du Soleil. Cirque, they can't even say it, but it's up to you. It works like this. You tell Seat Swap what tickets you have on hand or looking forward to trade, and then you select the tickets you want to trade for. And like that, you're introduced to scores of fans, just like you. Maybe not just like you. Probably for a better reason, they're not just like you. But but they, they, they love the fun and excitement of negotiating a fantasy football trade. And that's, the, that's sort of the beauty of what SeatSwap does. So right now, SeatSwap is giving Red Ticket Blues listeners the opportunity to be the first to use the site before anyone else gets their hands on it. It's like being the first person to own an iPod in 2003. I mean, it's pretty good, right? Not only will you be the coolest kid in the block, but you also have get the chance to yell at the founders of SeatSwap. Who doesn't like yelling at founders of websites? If you should see some of my emails to Scoop Jackson back in the day, CEO of Slam, when he was just a lowly writer for them, it really wasn't that interesting. But there was some back and forth about Ricky Moore and Allen Iverson. We'll put it that way. Uh, <laughs> what am I talking about? Uh, you get to yell at them and tell them what you like and what you think sucks about it. Not only that, but they will tell you to, they will let you use it for free and uh, maybe get me some uh, comprehension reading skills. Um, let's see. If you thought to yourself, Brian, there's no way this could possibly get any better, right? Well, you'd be wrong again. You, you know I'm usually right. Because right now, if you're a season ticket holder, SeatSwap is giving you the chance to become a verified member. Just like having that little check mark on Twitter, but better. You know, the one I keep repeatedly asking Twitter for. They just can repeatedly tell me, who are you? Why are you contacting us? Please don't do it again. 
When you become a verified suite swap member, you get tons of perks like preferred status among other users, the ability to swap for free, and exclusive access to premium features. So there you go. Uh, a little better than me trying to, you know, do that with Twitter. If that wasn't enough, you people always want more. So for a limited time, when you sign up for SeatSwap, you're going to get $20 off your first purchase on their partner site, SeatGeek. You know SeatGeek when you use the code SWAP. So come on, you can go either way here. So if you're not looking to swap something today or just find tickets you can use to trade up, go to SeatGeek.com or download their app and use the promo code SWAP. So all your bases are covered. That's baseball uh, terminology right there. I think I've done about enough selling, so don't wait and go to SeatSwapTickets.com slash season tickets. That's SeatSwapTickets.com slash season tickets because everyone loves free stuff. Just don't say they never did anything for you. That was a long read. A little of my commentary splashed in, so I hope everyone enjoyed it. Remember, SeatSwapTickets.com. Um, that's good to Bill Pennington. He is a sports writer for the New York Times and author of several books, including Billy Martin, Baseball's Flawed Genius. He is Bill Pennington. Bill, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Brian. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's let's start with football here. You covered the Giants for five years for the Times. Now, they're 3-3. Three and three. That's average. It's mediocre. It's not great. It's not terrible. Can you remember a time that the organization looked this out of control and can't get out of its own way outside of the white lines with – with Odell Beckham and Josh Brown situation. I mean, two completely different situations, but two distractions, to say the least. Well, I mean, they had some really, you know, like I'm older than you, I bet. Uh, they had some really, really bad years in the uh, 70s when I was in college. Uh, and uh, it was a really dysfunctional organization then. I guess that's more football than, than anything else. But it led to other things. There was a, there was a family fight going on, the whole fate of whether the mayors would own the team. It, it it was a pretty bad mess uh, back then as well, but not in sort of the the, uh, uh, the way it is now. I mean, you know, not not sort of the headlines of uh, what are they thinking? Not of not as many head scratching sort of episodes. Uh, this is probably uh, one of their worst times in terms of that. And uh, it, it's true. I mean, you know, I listened to uh, John Mara's comments on. We did that radio interview for about less than five minutes just before he left for uh, London with the with the team. And I, I was shocked, you know, I mean, I think a lot of us were, I mean, John is a, known as a, a very uh, astute, sort of careful guy. And I, I couldn't, I was, it was shocking to me that he said that the team knew about Josh Brown's abuse uh, and, and, you know, continued to keep him on the team and indeed side him for to a two-year extension on his contract. The, you know, the Mara is usually leading a classy organization and Giants are known as a classy, classy team. I mean, that's really unexpected, but the suspension, too, with the NFL, because Roger Goodell and, you know, the NFL, are they're putting out fires everywhere, expect, you know, with the unexpected ratings dip being one of them. The six-game mandatory suspension for domestic violence, why are they, you know, throwing that as, as, as the golden rule when they never enforce it? And to be even more hypocrites, I mean, we get the no more commercials, I mean... It's another, speaking of things that can't get out of their own way, the NFL, once again, just not consistent with suspensions for domestic violence. Well, yeah, I mean, you can't argue the facts. I mean, you know, there's been, what, there's been 10 of them, uh, I think, since uh, since the Ray Rice incident, and uh, I think it's only three that have resulted in six games. So, uh, yeah, I mean, what's the what's the point of having it if that's not what you're going to do? Now, obviously, they say that they always said that they, they, were, they could use mitigating circumstances to adjust the punishments up or down. Um, really doesn't seem to have worked out that way, and it certainly <laughs> didn't do. 
what they could have done and gotten more information from uh, the, the police in Washington makes you wonder, you know, what, who these investigators are. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, a, a host of reporters, including me, have gotten more material than they got in, in the last, you know, two, two months, two and a half months. So when we first became aware of it, really, uh, and, you know, so they had a head start of, uh, you know, many, many months and still didn't really even, they didn't seem to come up even with the things that you can get just by calling up the, the clerk in the, in the in King County and asking for certain documents. The NFL sometimes, it's funny, you know, the, their investigation powers, I mean, they're either incompetent or they just, uh, you know, it's see no evil, heal no, hear no evil. I mean, it's over and over again, huh? the most simple investigative tools are not being used. Just like you said, a simple phone call would have sufficed. Uh, yeah, and they had power too. It's like the, you know, the, one of the detectives there, or the uh, one of the sheriffs, the uh, department had said, you know, nobody ever came in and said, hey, we're doing this for the NFL, and and you know, can you help us out? You know, like investigator to investigator, or you know, we're not, you know, uh, we're not just a citizen asking for these things, and and you know, maybe everybody should be equal, but I think you know, law enforcement understands that in some of these cases they can talk in off-the-record ways that don't prejudice, uh, you know, the investigation or any potential trial, but say, look, if you're looking into this guy, here's what, here's at least what we seem to know so far, and, you know, you might be wary. I mean, and they said that they more or less would have done that, but nobody ever came to them and said, hey, I'm investigating this for the NFL, which is mind-boggling, really. I mean, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's, a, it's another black eye. I mean, what can you say? On a much lesser note, but it's still visual, so people talk about it, you know, assuming Beckham, Odell Beckham, puts up 200 yards every week and the Giants keep winning, am I wrong to assume that his his antics, his, his displays of emotion are going to be universally accepted in that organization? Well, I don't, you know, I think there's plenty of, um, uh, con- I don't know if consternation is the right word, but there's plenty of people in that organization, including the coach and, and starting quarterback, who would wish he would tone things down and uh, and have talked to him about that. The problem is that, you know, I think they think that part of what his talent is is this incredible passion he brings to the game, and, and uh, you know, and you've got this sort of virtuoso, and, you know, do you tell, you know, Mozart to stop playing so loud? Um, and, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's where they're at, I think. I do think there are people there that would be really happy if he, you know, gave up his romance with the kicking net and all this other thing and yeah, never talked I, about it again. A tired, but, tired joke that was never really funny in the first place. No, you're, no, you're right. It really, really wasn't. Um, so, I mean, well, I mean, I think it might have been, I think when he was the first time he went back after hitting it the next week when he went over and, like, right. kissed the net, maybe that was okay because it's kind of, like, funny, like, oh, it ended, I know I exactly. did bad, now I'm going to make up for it, you know. But it should have ended there. Um, but I think there are people, but like I said, it's, it's, um, you know, he's not doing any, you know, I mean, it's just, a, I think they're a little bit worried about telling him, you know, take it easy. It's sort of like telling him don't run so fast, you know, I mean, right. can you catch the ball and go into the end zone without sprinting so hard, you know? So, but I mean, obviously he shouldn't take his helmet off. He shouldn't bring the strat, you know, I mean, this is a team that's made up of, you know, and an active, ro- not a daily roster, but, you know, 50 so people and. You know, it, it, that's a lot of personalities to manage, and you can't have any one personality that's, you know, outsized beyond the group to the point where it's all anybody talks about. Uh, last thing on the Giants here, and it's some uh, real sports radio fodder here. Uh, in this roller coaster season here with the Giants, let's say it takes a real nasty turn. Giants plummet. The, the, the season is just a complete wash. Could you see the Giants making a move with McAdoo, or is one year just not – it's just not fair? No, there's no chance okay. they do that. They're, they're – uh, 
them of all people they won't do that um i you know i think it's possible they could decide that that uh, the general manager uh, uh needs to be changed although they've only had you know uh, a few in you know 40 something years yeah. so they don't change a lot there but no i don't, i couldn't see anyway i mean you know ray hanley again going back in history ray hanley who took over parcells was a was a much bigger disaster than McAdoo could ever be this year, uh, and uh, both on the field and off the field, uh, and he still got two years. So um, uh, I would think, yeah, I think McAdoo's McAdoo's going to be here for a while. Fair enough. Uh, transitioning to baseball, we're doing this on Saturday afternoon, so obviously Game Six of the NLCS will have already happened by by the time by the time people hear this. But Clayton Kershaw, I mean, he, he's turned around his narrative in the playoffs here. He's, he's given David Price hope that you can win in the regular season and postseason. Uh, do you, does he need an immaculate performance in game six to change everyone's mind, or has he already done that in, in your mind? Uh, I think he's – I wouldn't think of his postseason as a bust if he, do, if he doesn't. Uh, he's obviously pitched you know, really well at, at uh, you know, a variety of times. So, I mean, I, no, I think he's uh, – you know, he's obviously going into a, a tough place to – a tough environment, depending on how the wind's blowing, could be a really tough place to pitch. Uh, I think he's done a good. I think he's done a good job. Uh, I don't think he has to uh, win to, to cement his legacy or anything like that. Obviously, his career isn't over. I mean, you know, right, right. Postseason legacy has got a long way to go. We'll see. Uh, you wrote about one of the most unique and combustible managers ever in Billy Martin, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But managing has played a big role in these playoffs here. Is is anyone sticking out to you as doing the best job or the worst job? You know, pulling the right strings uh, in this in these MLB playoffs. Well, I mean, Francona's obviously yeah. doing a great job. <laughs> I mean, he's just, uh, you know, he's now. There's a guy that's sort of cementing his legacy. I mean, if he can get the the Indians, I mean, even getting them to the World I Series, I think exactly the fact that win the World Series, the fact that they're there, exactly. I think yeah, that's done a lot. I mean. And have done what he did in Boston. I mean, you have to sit up and notice this guy. If, if you hadn't before, you have to say, "Wow, that's he wasn't just lucky to have good talent in Boston." And you know, somebody had to win in Boston eventually, and it just happened to be him. No, obviously he had a lot to do with it, and uh, he's had an awful lot to do with getting the Indians out of where they were and, and where they're going. You know, and I think Madden's a good manager too. Um, I like his uh, sort of unconventional approach. I like uh, him challenging uh, a lot of long-held baseball tenants and uh, like batting practice every day no matter what and he, he doesn't believe in a lot of things that people that baseball people in baseball have believed for decades and decades and i think then the game needs kind of a, a a reversal like that it needs to be turned upside down a little bit every 20 years or so and it's interesting that a 62 year old guy is the guy that's doing it but man's a pretty cool cat yeah he definitely uh thinks outside the box uh uses the stats sometimes doesn't use the stats all the time. You kind of wish Joe Girardi would sometimes back away from the binder and and look at it as a baseball game. But yeah, Madden has definitely done well. Francona, uh, Dave Roberts has had a few hiccups, but uh, they're still there. It's Game Six of the NLCS. So talking about Billy Martin here. So you covered the Yankees for the Bergen Record for a, a good part of the the '80s Martin Steinbrenner saga. You had to go to work every day with the other beat writers and say, you know, th- this isn't normal. This is a once in a lifetime beat here with these characters. Well, yeah, that's for sure. And we knew it was so because we couldn't go to bed until like you know one or two o'clock in the morning every day. 
Uh, we, we literally almost used to take turns. It was almost like there was a pool reporter that would be, okay, who's like staying up with Billy until last call you know, this night? Because nobody could stay with him. You couldn't possibly stay with him every day. Uh, but you couldn't leave him alone either. I mean, it literally, it literally was dangerous to uh, not have somebody kind of watching what was going on. And I'm not saying we did that every day, but in, you could see when things were going bad, if they were in a losing streak and you knew George Steinbrenner was calling him five times a day and haranguing him and all that, you could see the tension in Billy's eyes. And those were the periods when that was going on. You thought, well, boy, if some the wrong guy comes over and says the wrong thing to him at 1.30 in the morning, he's probably going to get punched or something, and we better be aware of that. Uh, so, uh, you know, yeah, it was, it was interesting, but at the same time, he could be a lot of fun to be around. He was a very charming, uh, guy. Uh, and, uh, I think, you know, like, it's funny, the guys that were on that beat, you know, Tom Verducci, um, uh, some of these guys retired, but all became like uh, prominent in one way or another, but Tom was on the beat with me and, uh, Mike McElary became a Pulitzer Prize winner and, uh, we, you know, we all look back and now we do talk about it, we kind of shake our heads and laugh at the crazy days covering uh, Billy, but I think we all think it was a lot of fun, too. I can imagine. Uh, there have been other Martin biographies uh, written before yours. So what is it that, you know, spoke to you and said, I, Bill Pennington, you know, need to write a Billy Martin biography? Well, I, I, you know, I read the other ones and I just thought, you know, they really aren't capturing the guy I knew. And, and those were the, those all of those were written shortly after his death. So it was almost 25 years since any biography had been written. And, you know, it's sort of like people went back in the last few years and looked at, you know, Alexander Hamilton and looked at John Adams. And, and I'm not comparing Billy. To I was just going to say, that's some esteemed that, company there. Yeah, I know. But, I mean, all right, let me put it in other terms. We, people have uh, gone back and written, you know, historical sports biographies in the recent years about Pete Maravich or Joe Namath. Right. And, um I thought the same way. I thought, okay, his whole story really hasn't been told, and and it hasn't been, hadn't been told by anyone who really, you know, traveled with him and knew him, as, you know, as much as I did. I mean, I spent so much time with him. I I felt like this was the most interesting guy I had ever covered. He still is the most interesting guy I've ever covered, and it's a whole story that that's there to be told that really hasn't been told in total. You know, go back to his birth or even before his birth and and work your way forward. And he also, his last wife, his widow, Jill, had not spoken to any reporters for 25 years. And I knew she knew a lot. She was there when he died. She, you know, she was with him the last seven or eight years of his life. So even though he was married for some of those years to someone else, but um, I convinced her to talk to me. And that was a big thing, you know, because that opened up a lot of uh, uh, stuff we just didn't know about. So uh, I think that's why I did it. I just felt like the whole story hadn't been told. And, And frankly, that's, since the book's been out, that's what other people have said to me. I mean, people in his family said, you know, I thought I knew everything about him, but, you know, I learned things from reading the book. I think there's a lot, there was a lot left to be told. You wrote in the book here, and I quote, I discovered that Billy was without a question one of the most magnetic, entertaining, sensitive, humane, brilliant, generous, insecure, paranoid, dangerous, irrational, and unhinged people I had ever met. Uh, how was he on a day-to-day basis covering the team? Was it a little of that every day? Yeah, there was, there was, depending on the day. It would change day to day. I mean, you know, uh, in the morning in the hotel lobby, you saw him after breakfast, he probably smiling and happy. And, and uh, you know, depending on how the rest of the day went and how many times Steinbrenner bothered him, he could go off the other way. And then if they lost the game and they lost it in a bad way and any of his managerial moves didn't work out, then you'd really want to not be around him. It be, might be not good for your health. I mean, it would uh, – 
It could be all those things. And that's, and I wrote that sentence very early. I mean, I wrote 200 and something thousand words, it's 503 page book. And that was one of the earlier sentences because that I've tried to tell people, you know, uh, over the years, what he was like. And, and that's sort of what I would say. Well, he was all of these things. He was so many different things all at once. But then, you know, a lot of a lot of really successful, charismatic, interesting people, generals, presidents, you know, uh, business tycoons, they're, they're, they're often multifaceted like that. They're usually not just one way. And he was sort of in, in that category. He was a very fascinating sort of guy. You you bring up some of the good times that, but there were bad times, and we, we know about Martin trying to fight Reggie Jackson and and Ed Winston in a bar and plenty of others. Um, tell us about the time Billy Martin sort of uh, tried to fight you. <laughs> yeah, well, we were had um, uh, he actually wasn't even managing that year. There was a year <laughs> there was a uh, ninety uh, eight not ninety eighty seven. He was in between uh, his fourth stint and his fifth stint. He was a, a, a pregame broadcaster. He just did like a tape segment and, and pre and post game, I think. And so uh, I, you know, he was around, and I had man, I had covered him in '85 when he managed. I knew him. I had a good relationship. We'd never had any problems. But uh, you know, as often happens, uh, 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 people tell, like friends of his, told him that I had written something that I didn't, that I'd written that, you know. Uh, that the Yankees are a lot better off with him in the broadcast booth than him in, in the dugout. And Lou Pinello was manager then. And so we were in Cleveland, and, and uh, there was a rain out, and the whole uh, Yankee traveling party went across the street to this bar from the old municipal stadium. And we're in there, and, and Billy's sort of signaling me and, like, calling me over. And, I, I, you know, I just waved him. I didn't know what he was doing. And finally he went to the men's room, and the traveling secretary came over and said, I, did, you know, did you write something about Billy? Because he's over there. He wants to kill you. I said, no, I haven't even typed his name in a month. What are you talking about? He's a broadcaster. I don't cover the broadcasters. And uh, he said, well, he thinks you did. He said, you know, you know how he gets, you know, like you might want to just get out of here and we'll settle this tomorrow. And uh, so I was like, oh, God, you know, I mean, a rain out, when you're, in a, when you're covering a team, I mean, a rain out is like a snow day when you're in grammar school. I mean, this is awesome. You got the night off. You don't have to write. You, Right. You actually can go get a beer at, uh, you know, eight o'clock at night instead of at one o'clock in the morning, which is usual. And and uh, I didn't want to leave, you know, but eventually, you know, I finished my beard and I, I headed for the door. And as I was heading for the door, out of the corner of my eye, here comes Billy. And he comes over and he grabs my hand and he's shaking it, which he never used to do. And he's shaking it really hard. He's like gripping my hand like he's trying to break the bones in it. And he says, you know, uh, maybe we should go outside and settle our differences. And I'm saying, Billy, we don't have any differences. He goes, well, somebody told me you wrote something about me. And I said, I, it's not me, Billy. And he wouldn't let go of my hand. And this just kept going, let's go outside. You know, I think we can, you know, settle our differences outside. And finally the traveling secretary was a great guy came over and said, you know, ah, Billy, come on, let me buy you a drink. You know, we'll talk about this tomorrow. And, you know, finally Billy let go of it. And he's you know, like wagged his finger at me and said, you know, we're going to get to the body. You know, we'll, we'll still settle this, you know? And so I took, you know, hit out the rest of the night in Cleveland somewhere. And next day I'm at the ballpark and uh, I see him sitting in the press room before the game. And I go over to him and I said, Billy, I don't know what that was about last night. You know, like this is just some big misunderstanding. And he just looks at me and he goes, uh, well, really glad you came over. You know, that's a you know manly thing to do. He says, he says, I said, yeah, well, I don't, I don't know what the deal was. And he goes, he says, well, you know what? He says, this is how I'm going to handle it. He says, uh, I don't remember what made me so mad at you, he says, but I'm just going to forget about it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, the, I think one of the best things, it's stories like that. I mean, there's, there's one of the best things in the book uh, that I had never heard before 
was, you know, Billy was ultimately fired from the Rangers because of a power struggle with the owner over the PA music. Uh, yeah. What was one of the things that you learned? I mean, you probably thought you knew everything there was to know about Billy Martin. What was something you learned doing the research for this book? I didn't know. Um, I didn't know how religious he was, in, and sort of, uh, uh, you know, how he kept other people in line in his family uh, when it came to going to church and stuff when he was young. I had, you know, I had no concept of that. I mean, I knew Billy went to church. He would talk about going to church uh, on Sundays and during the season and stuff. And I never really even knew if he did or didn't. Or, but I mean, you know, then I went back to his neighborhood and talked to his cousins and these people that grew up in this ramshackle little part of the um, Berkeley that he lived in. And, uh, and they said that, you know, Billy would be the one, you know, tapping on the glass of their house, you know, at Sunday morning at eight, getting everybody up to go to church and how much time he spent in that church and worked for the priest and, you know, cleaned the pews and did all this stuff. It's a, it's a, it's another one of these real paradoxes because, you know, the day before, maybe even on the way to the church, he might've gotten a fist fight in the park there. So he lived in a really rough neighborhood. Um, and he fought almost daily, or it wouldn't be uncommon. And and but at the same time, he was you know very devout Roman Catholic and 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 valued the church, and it was a big part of his young life. You know, but that that's exactly the kind of paradoxes that he continued throughout his life. You know, I mean, for example, I talked to the umpire Richie Garcia, longtime umpire. And we were talking about various times that Billy came out and was screaming and yelling at him and having a fight and 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 not an actual fight, but you know, an argument. And uh, and uh, Garcia said, yeah, you know, and some of the hardest part would be that because Billy always wore a little crucifix in between the interlocking N and Y on his cap, a little gold crucifix he put on his cap. He says Billy'd be screaming and yelling at me and you know, spit flying in my face, and I'm staring at this crucifix. <laughs> I just couldn't, you know, he says you know, the juxtaposition, he'd be swimming, screaming and swearing at me and kicking dirt at me, and yet he had a crucifix on his cap. That's a great tidbit, just that, you know, that being this devout religious person is probably, I mean, to the public is one of the last things they think if they think Billy Martin. Uh, yeah. You did a lot of research for this book, uh, like you mentioned, the ex-wife and and Billy's son. Um, is there anyone that obviously available alive that you wanted to talk to but never got the opportunity to? Um, Reggie didn't give me a lot of time. Um, uh, I mean, we, we did speak, and uh, but he—it's not one of his favorite subjects. So uh, um, I, I, I don't know that there's anybody that, that wouldn't talk to me um, that I really wanted to talk to. It was uh, because the funny thing about Billy was even you'd call up someone that you know he he had was an, an enemy of his somebody that you know um he you know that that he had uh, you know kicked off his team or, or that they felt he was unfair to him and then you'd get him on the phone and uh you'd tell him i'd tell him what i was doing booking billy martin and they would usually start laughing they would just go oh, <laughs> oh billy yeah man you know like never a dull moment with billy you know and then they would go on to tell you what they didn't like about him but it was almost like, and maybe it's 25, 30, you know, some of these things, it was 30, 35 years later for these people. Um, maybe the, you know, time had softened their, the edges on all these memories. But people generally were kind of like, you know, they still didn't like him or they still didn't like some of the things he did, but they, they you know, they kind of understood that this was, um, he was a guy that came to his opinions quickly and didn't change them always and and you know he was a, he was very much of a, a loyal guy that like if he was with if you were with him you were always with him but if you if you 
or on the other side. He usually kept you there on the other side. He held grudges, you know. So um, uh, I don't know there's anybody that I really wanted to get to that I, I couldn't get to. Uh, I mean, obviously, there are people that weren't, that weren't around anymore. And right. That was, that's too bad. But, uh, no, you know, like, I remember calling up Earl Weaver the first time and thinking, okay, well, they had some unbelievable battles. Mm-hmm. Some of it seemed personal. And geez, Earl was like, great. I mean, I talked to him a few times before he died, and he, you know, he was like, no, you know, he'd say, no, actually, we were pretty good friends. He says, I mean, yeah, we'd go at each other like we were trying to kill each other, but then we'd go get a drink afterwards, and we were fine. <laughs> uh, no, and those two, it was more than a drink. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it was quite a party. Um, you make the argument at the end of your book that, you know, between the white lines of playing and managerial career of Billy Martin is Hall of Fame worthy. So, why don't more sports writers share your feelings? Well, uh, because his image is that because, the drunken brawler yeah, sort of yeah 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 uh, which is understandable. But that's you know that's another reason to write to write the book is that that if you're especially if you're you know under forty years old or forty five years old, maybe all you do know about Billy Martin is the four seconds you've seen on ESPN of him kicking dirt on an umpire. That might be all you've ever seen of him. That and getting in the fight with Reggie and then and then. Fenway dugout, um, and there's just so much more of that. So you have no idea that he has a better winning percentage than 13 managers that are currently in the Hall of Fame, and that he won one World Series, which is the same as what Weaver won and Bobby Cox won and Whitey Herzog won, and they're all in the Hall of Fame. Leo DeRocher, same thing. And Billy never managed in the wild card era. He's only managed for 16 years, and if there had been if the, not even the two wild cards per league – if you just go back to the wild card, one wild card uh, situation, he would have gotten six more teams into the playoffs. So he got he got five in, and he would have gotten six more. It's, you know, it's likely, it's probably likelihood he would have won another World Series in the current uh, playoff conditions. So this was a really great manager, not just a good, interesting, personable one that made a lot of fuss with and screamed and yelled at umpires. This was a guy who won a tremendous number of games and always took over, almost always, exclusively, took over teams that were horrible. I mean, you know, so he compiled this, you know, 50, almost 56% winning percentage after taking over a, you know, horrible team in Oakland, a really, really horrible team in Texas. Even the Yankees, when he got in 75, were a second-tier team, so... He did some magical, unbelievable things that nobody else has done, and I understand why some of my colleagues won't vote him in, and probably never will, because uh, you know maybe they're bothered by the by the you know the drinking and the brawling and stuff. And if that's if that's why you don't want to vote for him, that's fine. Just say that's why. Don't don't say it's because he's not qualified otherwise, because he certainly is qualified between the lines. Definitely a name you'd like to hear more when the Hall of Fame ballot results come out and everyone has a uh, take on who belongs and doesn't. You you don't hear Billy Martin, and you probably should. Uh, I think that's right. Bill, I want to thank you for coming on today, but uh, before you go, to play us out here, I have three quick questions for you. You ready? Okay. All right. Do self-driving cars scare you? Because they scare me. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I can't even. That whole concept is horrifying to me. Okay. Uh, will Tiger Woods? You're you're a big golf guy. You've you've written some golf books as well. Will Tiger Woods ever win another major? I I'll say yes, but uh, hmm, every risky. every couple months that go by, I'm I'm starting to teeter on that on that opinion. Okay. And last question: If we took Billy Martin, the manager of the Yankees from from the '80s, and transported him to the present. 
with camera phones, Twitter, etc., would Billy Martin last a season as a manager? Oh God, no! He wouldn't last a month. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's it's a, it's a, no, no, no. He wouldn't last long at all. I mean, you know, he didn't like being second guess. I mean, my God, if he turned on Sports Center every morning and there he was being second guessed by five people, and then went on to the you know, the next uh, part of the the programming and got, was getting second guessed again, he'd be. He'd be he'd be driving to the studio and probably trying to uh, jump into the set and yell at everybody. So he wouldn't last long at all. No. Yeah, lucky for him, sports radio in New York WFAN had just sort of started when uh, he unfortunately passed. So no more no more second guessing from uh, all of New York City. Um, yeah, no, he wouldn't. That wouldn't have worked at all. And smartphones, I mean, God, at, at night that would have been that would have been the end of that. You know, so that would have been the end of his managerial term. Yeah. You can follow Bill on Twitter at Bill M Pennington. He is a sports writer for the New York Times and author of Billy Martin's Baseball's Flawed Genius. Bill, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure, Brian. It was fun. Great stuff from Bill Pennington. I only wish because I was a kid. I remember that that era just being like, Dad, why do they keep hiring and firing this guy? Like, I wish I knew behind the scenes and everything. I mean. Bill, great job bringing us back to to what life was like then. And I've read the book, and it's a it's a great book for any any Yankee fan. I think you got to watch. You got it. Well, you don't want to watch the book. You're going to read the book. But great, can't recommend that book enough. So thank you to Bill Pennington uh, for being a guest. Remember, you can listen to this show and all the other podcasts with all the other guests that I've uh, had on on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube, and Google Play. Remember to follow me on Twitter at BrianBuck13 and at RedTicketBlues. Go to all those venues. Remember, give the show a review. If you're not, you have nothing to complain about. See, like the American non-voter. You want to bitch and moan, you got to do something about it. Only good reviews. Uh, with all that being said, I'm out of here.